sharing huge space. Look how fast he's going. Polar opposite to the conditions he won in Lords. Rain soaked Lords. They're getting the last step down. The crowd is roaring. He is going to do it. He's going to smash the time. Downhill racer and our expert here today, Andrew Needling. All right, welcome back to Moving the Needle podcast. I'm Andrew Nietling, and I'm very honored because this week I'm talking to the winner of the very first official World Cup Downhill Series. He won that overall. He's also going to tell us about smuggling alcohol into Norway to pay for some of these first races. Mr. Jürgen Benicke, how are we doing? How's it going? I like how you ease into it with the illegal activities right away. You know what I mean? Yeah, man, you know how it is. I'll just throw that little carrot in there so hopefully the listener will stay till. We'll talk about it, what, in the last minute or something? Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. It's always important to alert the authorities in the beginning of a podcast because it gives them like an hour to get to your door. I live in America now. You know, times are changing. (laughs) (laughs) That they are. I mean... Yes, but you, you are living in America, but I mean, catch the listener because I was uh, privy and honored to know of your history and, and even meet you later in your years. And I think I watched you back in 97 or 98 when you were here in Stellenbosch. So yeah. I'm a little bit older than some of my listeners, but catch the listener up on, on where you come from and how you got into this crazy sport. Um, it's, uh, I'll give you the, the fast version of it. Which might actually, who knows? Fast version I saw was actually a hockey player um, when I was a little kid. Then we moved to a town where the hockey team went bankrupt. Uh, I was 12 years old. My mom passed away. I ran away from home. My dad was kind of freaking out, didn't know what to do with me. And he decided to put me in the local cycling club in Germany. And that kind of became my second family. Raced road bikes since age of 12 and I kind of just totally went head over heels into that and found a relief valve in cycling and that was kind of my savior I would think for most of my life um, and um, raced cyclocross, road, track, everything until the you know the appearance of the mountain bike which was basically non-existent when I started racing um, so the mountain bikes appeared in the late uh, well, actually, for, for me, I think the first mountain bike I saw was like a 1991. I was like, what is this? This was kind of like, uh, I think it was national. I was in the national team for cyclocross. And uh, they basically gave us mountain bikes to try out. They wanted our opinions. And they were, they were, they were crazy bikes. It was like old Centurion with like Kennedy brakes. And, and I mean, rigid, full rigid, rigid fork and, you know, hardtail. Obviously, there was no full suspension forks even then. Uh, and yeah, basically, um, race and road, eventually I got into the amateurs when you're 18, there was no U23 back then. There was also still a divided field of racing. There was professional road racing. I think it was, yeah, there was also the Olympics were still split up. Like if you were, if you were a professional athlete, athlete, you could not go to the Olympics. It was only for amateurs. It was, uh, it was a different time and um eventually i i, I kind of got paid i was like semi it was like a semi-pro road team in germany i raced for and um uh, i was kind of burning out a little bit and i had to take a break and a vacation i took uh, a couple of buddies of mine we decided to go to a mountain bike race in norway we just packed up the the team van as a vw bus and i think the four of us went up there to race uh in 1992 it was called the grundig super cup which was uh, 
basically the uh, the pre. It was a test series for uh, the UCI and Grundig to see if they even should have a downhill World Cup. They already had cross country World Cups; those were already existing. So uh, the '92 Super Cup series was like uh, it was Lubbabool in France, Lillehammer in Norway, Capru in Austria. And, and the formats were varying still. I think 92 season, they changed it from race to race. I know there were a couple of races. I think Norway was one that was, I think I sent you the, 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 the result sheets. It's amazing. It was uh, two, two runs combined. So basically you had to do two full race, race runs and they would combine the times. And it was, you know, made like for tremendous times, you know. Um, and I think later on they had a couple of races that did best out of two runs which is this is a terrible idea because you'll just get one decent run down and then you go for the Hail Mary pass at the end and people were killing themselves so that was a bad idea it didn't last that did not last long because they realized soon that this is we're gonna we're gonna have like people are killing themselves out there so the best out of two was that was eliminated um yeah I kind of, you know, like I went through all the changes and uh, I, I kind of, you know, had to, we all had to grow with the sport, but it was, it was great. It was uh, cycling in, in in a different way. It was a new sport. And, um, you know, talking about your alcohol story, it was, I don't know who brought that up. That's, I'm just going to blame a friend of mine because I don't think I was that but, smart. But let's not jump, let's not jump too far because we're talking about basically the history of downhill as as we know, it started then and there, and you were one of the first races, and almost by chance that you ended up going to Lilleheim and, and getting kind of stuck into downhill, and, and that became a real career and professional career for you. I mean, that was almost by chance, just taking a holiday, burnt out on road bikes, and there you found yourself at what you didn't even know was much of a sport, and let alone did the organizers, from what I hear. Yeah. Well, this was... I was 21, I think. So I already, I don't know, I was still, I was still working full time uh, and I was getting my education as a tool and die maker in Germany. So I was working from like seven to five every day. And, you know, I didn't, my, I used all my vacation days up mainly for racing. Um, so it was, I was, I said I had 500 marks a month or so I got paid to race road and it was you know sometimes because I was I was a good sprinter I was kind of fearless and I had decent speed I was a best at mediocre climber so if they would shake me over the climbs you know you know bad you know bad for me good for them but if I were to make it over the climbs and I would be in the finish sprint then that was all on me then so that was kind of my job in the team um but there was, you know, there wasn't that much money to be made. Like you race, like you race six hours, right? A six hour race, common, five, six hour race. And, you know, you're just in bad position or let's just say you get dropped on the last climb, you know, it's done. You race basically six hours for nothing, made no money, right? You go home. I mean, you try to help your team maybe whatever, but it's, it's a lot of sacrifice for nothing. And I remember vividly going to that Lillehammer race, the very first one, with a hard, like a Rocky Mountain hardtail. I had a front suspension. It was a Unishot, and it was a piece of, of doo-doo. 
it was it basically you can say shit on this podcast. Oh, it was it was shit. It was basically a suspension fork that all it had was a spring in it. So <laughs> the rebound speed, like the way it came out, was I mean you you could bunny hop the thing like crazy, but there was no dampening. It was just a spring. It was horrific. I think they only made it like a year or two. And I'm looking at these times. You you're coming from road. You've obviously got a strong engine. I mean, time one is nine minutes forty six, then nine minutes thirty one. I mean, you you managed an eighth place at your first unofficial World Cup here. Um, talk to us about racing those shitty bikes down pretty gnarly hills and and long runs at that. Yeah, but also let me let me step back. That was I think I got paid. I think it was like five hundred. US dollars or something. It was a it was a ridiculous amount of money for what you said. Eighteen minutes of fun, you know. It was basically they took the mountain bike downhill racing in my eyes took away the five hours and forty five minutes leading up to the finished sprint. I was like, yeah. oh, I, I literally it's like you're telling me I can start this race and start with the sprint. <laughs> this is like this was too easy at that point i mean I, there was a you know of course there were technical issues you had to like learn how to not you know eat shit and flip all the handlebars and break your bike but there were enough moments in between the technical sections where i'm like this is it you're not gonna you know there's nobody that's going to go faster than on the pedal sections than me i just had to make sure that i learned quick enough how to be a technical rider to get through all whatever was in my way, which cyclocross helped me a lot because if you, I don't know if you've ridden cyclocross, but cyclocross bikes, even to this point are probably, they're just, how do you describe them? Dog shit? <laughs> they're bad. Well, for going downhill in the mud, they don't seem good. Oh, they're terrible. And, and I race cyclocross still now to this day because I enjoy that you know everybody is in the same bad material equipment you know makes for good racing so um yeah i think uh having to basically learn with the sport that coughing by the way is my dog um you have to learn with the sport as it was developing because i think the uci didn't know what they really were getting into i don't think the organizers really had a clue all they knew is we start at the top and finish at the bottom. That was kind of the rule. What comes in between, you know, whatever is there, whatever we got, they weren't really building any trails. It was all hiking path or, you know, cow pastures or whatever was there. There was no construction. There was basically just put up some tape and you start top, finish at the bottom. Good luck. You know, it was, so it was cool. It was really cool. And Norway was also, there was no lift access. So, we had basically, since it was the four of us, uh, it was one guy would drive the van. And, and you could never drive all the way to the top either. There was always some sort of riding still involved. I mean, it was an effort. Like You would maybe get like one or two, uh, well, two runs in for sure, two or three maybe. I know Caproon, the earliest, uh, yeah, no, there was no shuttle, 92, 93 even, I think. You had to ride your bike to the top. There was no shuttle. Right? So the early thought, years, early years of downhill, you were 
sometimes getting a bit of a lift to the top, mostly riding. And we, we've got the modern day guys complaining about a long downhill track and you were having to ride to the top to get practice. It was almost like enduro, you know, you had to be as fit as an enduro rider. Yes. If you, my bike back then, I had two chain rings on my bike. I had no front derailleur. I had a big chain ring, a fairly big chain ring. I don't remember what the numbers were, but it was probably like a, I don't know, 46, 44, something like that. I don't know. Then I had, on the outside, I had a plate, solid plate that was taller. And the inside, same size plate. So basically, just to guide the chain from not falling out. So that was the chain guide of my early days. But then, on the very inside, I still, because those were all triple chain ring crank sets, I still had the granny gear on there. So after my run is done, I would basically take my hand, I would pick the chain out of the guide and pop it onto my granny gear, which allowed me to ride my downhill bike all the way to the top. So you needed, your bike needed to be able to, uh, you need to be able to ride your downhill bike to the top. Like Caprune, I'm 100% sure, 92 for sure, I think 93 was no shuttle runs. You had to ride to the top. Because I remember vividly getting only two runs in a day, and I know I had... Uh, you can actually have, we had lunch, we would do one run, we have lunch, we'd have beer, we'd drink, we kind of buzzed. By the time you get to the top for your second run, you'd be sober. <laughs> Dude, how <laughs> so, raw and fun. I mean, it's just like you guys were figuring it out as you go. Just everyone, organizers, course, bikes. Speak about the bikes though. I mean, you told me you finished a race with your fork backwards. So talk about the bikes back in the day. Yeah, that was, uh, that was again, that 92 season. That was a European championship, I think, in Austria. And um, that was with that dog shit, Unishock Scott Ford. And I had a really bad wreck in a steep section. And, and since, uh, you know, single crown forks, if you're crashing in a weird way, you could actually twist and tweak your handlebars. And that's what happened. I was doing cartwheels down this hill. I was kind of like flabbergasted. I was running, getting my bike, grabbed it, and I saw that basically the front wheel and the handlebars were at a 45-degree uh, angle. Basically, it was rotated. So I basically just grabbed the front wheel, put it between my knees, straightened out the bars, and hopped on. The only thing that I noticed as soon as I started riding is that I actually went the wrong direction so that my fork rake was pointing backwards. Everything was like if I started turning, my my toes would buzz the front wheel because basically I, <laughs> I was running my fork backwards, and uh, and I still had to go like a decent amount, uh, like another I don't know two minutes or so, and I actually have some photos of me doing like the finish jump with the fork backwards, looking like an absolute idiot, um, and I think I ended I don't remember what was that sixth or something in that I have no idea, it was it was good enough. It's well, I mean, it sounds like just getting to the bottom was a feat in itself, let alone trying to get results. But that's that's your kind of entry into it. But you quickly learn because in '93, you had they had the official World Cup series, and you, you managed some World Cup wins. You managed to take the overall, I mean, the first official World Cup series. And I'm speaking to the man that, that took that overall. So you clearly learned, started figuring it out. I mean, talk to us about getting more professional and, and figuring it out. Uh, so 93 was a it was good timing for them to do a first World Cup series in 93 for me because I just finished my tool and die apprenticeship. So I was officially had a job 
um, which I quit because I, I basically told myself, this is a new industry. There's money there. Um, I might as well give this a shot. And I gave myself a year to like not work. I was like, I'm not going to work. I'm not going to, you know, like my dad was mad as hell because I abandoned road cycling and I was, you know, I was on the national team. I was doing like stage races and I was on the, I was racing against Lance, you know, that was pre Lance becoming a world champion and famous road cyclist, you know, Armstrong. Um, so yeah, I, was yeah, I know kinda, that Lance, yeah. 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 I that Lance, right. Um, the, the pre we hate him Lance, I guess. <laughs> so it was, uh, you know, I, I basically turned my back on traditional cycling and went to something that seemed at that point kind of like a freak show because it was not developed. There was no history. There was no, there was no path really forward. It was unknown, right? But the only thing is there were sponsors willing and able and events were popping up. So I just kind of was like, also it was for me the path of least resistance because I was like, this is easy. I can do this. This is, this is, uh, I enjoy this. So, yeah, I mean, uh, so 93 was the first year. Um, I, I, it was also, so Germany back then still had a mandatory military service, and I know they would get me. Uh, so I kind of had to push that back. I know that I had to go 94. So it's just a perfect window that I, like I had time that year. I had to make it happen. If I would have not made it happen in 93, I probably would have vanished quickly we wouldn't be speaking today about these feats that's crazy man you 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 went against all odds a sport that's not really established could be gone in a year and yeah you might have to just get a real job well i had a real job you know so i was carpooling with guys and like my age now 40s you know to work at seven in the morning and i saw my life in front of my face for the next 35 40 years, whatever, or whatever it is, like 20 years, whatever. I, I saw what was lying ahead. And I was like, it might be worth taking a year off and see what happens. Because I know if I don't, I know what the path is. And I didn't, I mean, not that I didn't like working in a, in a factory, basically doing uh, the tool and die making and machining. It was, you know, it's not as mundane as it sounds. So I didn't, did not not like it, but I also was very you know, I was frightened by that this is such a final event in, you, you know, at 21 or 22, whatever. Um, so <clears throat> taking a shot at, uh, yeah, I was 20, I believe I was 23. Wait, yeah, 23. When I won the World Cup, I think. Yeah, um, math, don't, don't do this. Um, so I did... And 93, you know, I got to say that I did, so I did work for the three and a half years. It did teach me something. So I basically decided that if you're doing this for one year and you're basically making a decision on your own that this, you like I decided I'm going to be a professional cyclist, you know, it was basically my decision then I'm going to work at it like as if were my job, like with the guys carpooling to the factory. So those guys work eight hour a day, eight hours a day. So especially I had the, the, you know, the discipline from road cycling, you know, going on six, seven hour ride, hour uh, a day rides and, you know, doing all these workouts. I had the discipline to basically just say, I got to spend that amount of time 
at becoming really good at this thing, whatever this means. And sometimes it just meant for me, it's like, I just got to be on the bike. Even if it's just me dicking around, hopping downstairs or bunny hopping or learning how to do something. I just wanted to have bike time as much as possible because I wanted to take that as professional as possible and then definitely paid off. And, you know, uh, I, I kind of stayed with, uh, you know, with the current technical requirements and the skills that were needed to that point. And, you know, it continued, I guess. And how did things change after winning that first overall World Cup plus, you know, um, two World Cup wins that year? Yes, it's a new sport, but I mean, you must have been at top of the sponsors list. Anything like that? I was, so I have a kind of a, like a hate-love relationship yeah, with, with sponsors and bike industry in general a little bit because it's, they seem to be, I, I, I just, I don't want to be the disgruntled retired pro, so I'm only going to focus on the positives here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's, it's, um, it's hard at that age to look through what's happening when money is involved. And uh, I think there was not just me. I think there were a lot of people. And I'm sure that's happening still to this point. Young riders getting taken advantage of and maybe not getting paid as much as or maybe there's something on a handshake deal that didn't really get paid. And what are you going to do about it? And even if you can do something about it, is it worth it? It's just, you know, so I had the first two years raced on Manitou, uh, which were, I think, in my eyes, my most funnest years because I was there was no team but I had support if that makes any sense I didn't have yeah, a mechanic definitely. I didn't have a mechanic but I had always two bikes I had all the stuff I needed I had money to go to races I got paid some money I got some bonuses so it was it was everything that I wanted I was making a lot more money than being a tool and die maker so the world was okay in my book um so yeah, I, I I had a I bought a a massive Citroen brake, like a Citroen station wagon. And uh, so I could put the bikes on one side in the back and then sleep in the other side because you know, back then I would travel to races and I would oftentimes sleep you know, on the way home or so I would make it home or on the way there I would sleep in the in the car, you know, and uh yeah. Those were the those those were the best days on my eyes. I agree, man. I remember going over to America the first year and just eating like top ramen and not having any money and crashing on couches and begging for lifts. And I had a lot of help, don't get me wrong, a hell of a lot of help. But those early years were definitely some of my fondness, hey, like less pressure, no expectations. It was great. And the bikes back in the day, I mean, we're chatting and we've met before and I mean, it's totally different now. I mean, I would never think to not take a line because my bike isn't going to survive. But you had to think about line choice to save your bike for the race. Or or maybe in practice you knew you could do the line, but you didn't want to break that only bike you had or even the spare one, and you had to hold it off till till the race. You know, educate the listener on, on the difference of the sport back then to now and, and line choice and just, you know, what you could do. I remember there was a... It was in Cup Die in France. There was uh, this at the kind of at the bottom of the course. There was a section where you'd have to cross the road, and there was a like a it was like a right left, like an S bend, or you could kind of drop off. But you would kind of jump 
into you would land on pavement and the pavement was kind of like tilted against you. So you would you'd land in an uphill, more or less. The worst kind of thing. But it looked like, you know, everybody was looking at it and uh, we're all just like, yeah, we could probably, I mean, as a human being with, you know, legs and arms as suspension, even on like a two inch travel bike, we was like, I can absorb this. I just, I was pretty, you know, confident my, my cranks and my bottom bracket and whatever, something within that bike would not be able to absorb what I was doing to it. So and then we were all standing there watching, and I think it was a French kid that did it and snapped his bottom bracket off, and we're like, oh, no, that's it, done, you know, because we all were running the same stuff. So <laughs> we, we made our decisions based on, you know, watching other people snap stuff, and it was like, oh, if that snapped there, then, you know, I'm not going to do it, because, or you would save it for the race one and hope you make it through. It was, um, yeah, no, forks were breaking. I remember... <laughs> You know, there's so much that people don't understand, like the kids that are start racing now. By the way, I think everybody should own a hardtail and know how to ride a hardtail. Preach, preach, Jürgen. I couldn't agree more, man. Oh, my God. It's I actually, I didn't have a hardtail for a long time. And then we went to Puerto Rico to go riding on a vacation trip. And I, my bike blew up and I was like, I'm going to rent a bike. And I rented a crappy 29er hardtail. I had a blast because all of a sudden, you know, like slower technical trails became very interesting quickly. <laughs> yeah. And you had to look ahead. You need to, like, the reaction was instant. The feedback is instant. It really, I, I would highly recommend anybody who's into racing right now um, on their training rides, just hop on hardtails. It, you learn the feedback from the wheels, the tires what it sounds like when stuff like it's just it's such a there's a, no what do you call it there's no nothing in between it's so direct the feedback from tire to rider that if you don't know how to do that well i think you're missing out and then you take that package you learn how to deal with that and you take that into a large travel bike and i think you're cooking yeah, that's good feedback. I think uh, I've actually been riding my Spark RC, which is only 100 mil. So that is almost like a hardtail compared to what I'm always riding, right? Mm -hmm. Normally a 170 bike or a 150 or a downhill. And, I, and I'm having so much fun because, yes, some of these trails that aren't so fun, things, things are coming up quicker, number one. Yeah, yep. you've got to react. And your weaknesses show up very quickly if you've done your braking incorrect or you're not as smooth and... Yeah, I think people can really benefit from getting a hardtail, going out there on a raw bike, and you'll quickly realize you're maybe not as smooth as you once thought you were. And if you take that new skill to a tool suspension, man, you'll be even more fast and efficient. Right. I think the the consequences are bad when you're not good, when you're not paying attention to a hardtail. Well, talk about some of these consequences back in the day, because you guys were kind of uh, figuring the sport out as you go, equipment. What's what you're capable of doing on some of these downhills, which even in today's age, I don't think we would want to race down. Cap die is awfully rocky and horrible, and nine minutes of it, so you can barely hang on anyway. I mean, actually, that comes to, one thing comes to mind right now, and there's a, a Swedish rider. His name was Tommy Johansson, and uh, like, so there was this section. I think it was in Vail. You were flying down this fire, and you're dropping down into this turn. It was all stutter bombs. It was like. Basically, that section 
could exist in today's downhill, like races, and people would not complain about it being easy. It was like legitimate. Um, and um, I watched him drop into that. And back then, everybody was running cantilever brakes. So basically rim brakes. <laughs> and he, his, so it was like a compression, but you would shoot straight. Um, the for, his front fork suspension compressed and this cable, if you know how cantilever brakes work, you know, there's a cable from the lever yeah. Yeah, that yeah. goes to this little uh, crown for, on the fork that, you know, where the cable splits. The cable was just long enough that when the fork was uh, compressed that the cable would go over the bolt of the stem and then as the fork was basically pulling out, it locked up his front wheel. Like it was like these lessons, like you don't never think about these things. You know what I mean? It's like, oh wait, this can happen if I do this. And then, you know, just rim brakes in general and racing down a track and it, it's raining. You know what I mean? You pull your brake and nothing happens. It's just nothing. It's like, you're just not even slowing down for like a good, I don't know, five seconds before the water comes off the rims and then it's still not going to be great. Uh, so it's just the whole, you know, paranoia of not being able to slow down and rain races, you know, like your brake pads would be gone by the bottom, you know, the, the sand would just wear it all down. Um, and then forks, you know, like they just were not that great. They would break. I, I, I remember this, um, and this wasn't training, luckily. It wasn't in a race. I mean, I've had many forks break on me, but I had once, I had only one leg break on me. Like, you know, like you have the two fork legs. <laughs> so I had one leg, so one leg broke, so it twisted, and then that spring in there shot in my face so hard. So I, <laughs> it was like a, a gun shot right in my face. I got hit by my own spring. Dude, that happened to my brother with an elastoma. Uh, it's so yeah. dangerous. It's so dangerous. So exactly. for the for the listener, I guess if you can picture a fork of today's standards, it's where you would take the top cap off and put your air pressure in. Imagine that whole fitting just made its way loose out of the top stanchion and just that pressure of the air just shot it into the sky. Um, mm -hmm. That happened to my brother. He got hit in the chest, bruised him in the chest, luckily not in the eye or anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, see, and this this happened for me on a single crown fork, right? So it's basically it wasn't the cap that came loose; it was the fork leg that broke, and then it twisted open, and the spring shot me and hit me in the face. So I was like, "Yeah, that's that's that was uh, R and D back then." You, know? you guys yeah. were doing it, yeah, down a World Cup track. I mean, yes, there's definitely R and D and testing happening at today's World Cups, but those things are mostly mostly tested in CAD and. You know, by the engineers before, riders even a little alone near it. But I guess you guys were so desperate for anything that was better, you would take a chance. You didn't have the time to to wait and see if it worked. Yeah, if you were, if you were to walk in any Walmart right now, buy like whatever is there, mongoose or Schwinn or whatever. They, I don't know what they're selling there now. You take that thing, time travel it back to 1992, you got a massive advantage. You'll win on that. <laughs> you you got an advantage. That's nuts, man. Totally, totally. You might not. I mean, even if you were to do that, right? If you could time travel a Walmart bike back into 1992, it would be first of all, it'd be like groundbreaking technology. 
it would it would just blow everybody's mind. Absolutely. That's just nuts. So take us to a point that the sport obviously was changing over the years and you were getting things that working. When did you feel sort of more comfortable that your bike was going to get down and that you guys were maybe that the bike was capable of doing things and you got to the point that you were like, no, you know, I'm not doing that line because I might crash, you know, from lack of skill or going too fast or something like that. Ooh, I don't think there was, I mean, I think when, when I was on Schwinn, so I was like, it was Bear, I was uh, Manitou two years and I was Barracuda which I, I think I signed a three-year deal with. They went bankrupt after one year not paying me. So I've had a lot of not being paid years during those first years there. Um, and then they went bankrupt in like, I think November or something. It was basically, it was, it was later even. It was so late that almost every team was full. Every sponsors were done. They all spent their money. So I know that after winning the World Cup, and then second in the World Cup overall, 94, and then I had a crap, mediocre, crappy year, 95. But basically, I only got paid like 50 grand in 96 by Schwinn, you know, after all that. So I was like basically starting money-wise from zero again almost. Um, so I don't know if you talk about money on your show much or so, but, you know, I feel like... This is an open book, my friend. You can talk about whatever you want. You're not going to offend anyone. No, I know. I think it's it's always. I mean, it money ruins a lot of things. I think you know, it ruins sports and ruins the experiences. But eventually, you're dependent on it, and it's also, I think, also how most cycling careers end is because of lack of funds. It's either injury or lack of funds. It's one of the one of the two. I think that's. I might, I would think that's probably ninety five percent of retirements are either lack of funds or injury. Yeah, um, I think maybe. it's. I think that's a fair fair common and we can segue into that i think yeah i think mentally maybe from yeah injuries uh, a mental block against going fast and then yeah if you're not going to get your contract renewed and you're not going to and it's late in your career are you going to invest in yourself but you don't have many years left of of making a, a decision you have to think about putting food on the table i think that's a fair fair way of looking at it yeah yeah so uh but coming back to the bikes, so 95, yes, even so it was lack of funds. It was uh, my, okay, I guess I have to rephrase because Manitou were my favorite years as far as being an individual mountain bike racer, being my own team, my own everything. Basically, I put the, I put the package together as far as the parts go on the bike, the sponsors and everything. Then from 1996, 7, 98, yeah, three years, I raced for Schwinn. And that was uh, basically I gave up my rights of putting a package together and race on a team. And that was my favorite team, I would say. I loved that team. I loved everybody on it. Um, you know Monk Dog was racing, for, uh, was wrenching for Yeti back then, so you know him well. So and Schwinn and Yeti were kind of, they were attached by the hip. They, were one, they kind of were one and the same. Even so, the, the bikes had different paint jobs, but they came out of the same place. They were the same thing. And uh, so, yeah, Schwinn, Yeti, that was such a good team, good vibe. Elka, Bruta, my teammate, who was very, very similar to me in build and riding style. Um, she was like my favorite teammate. Uh, Corey, uh, Arsonia. Yeah, no, everybody was, was great on that. And those bikes, oh, talking about 
uh, engineers. I think we had some testing in early 96 with the Lowell. So you're familiar with Mert Lowell, I would assume. Yeah, didn't they license his for that design of the Schwinn and Yeti back in the day? It's beyond licensing. Mert was basically hands-on. He developed. was a designer, okay. Right. So with John Parker, uh, so it was Joe Lowell, uh, Mert's son, uh, Kurt Voorhees, me. Um, was there anybody else? I think Chris O'Driscoll was there too, I think. We were in Durango and we were testing the new Schwinn downhill bike, which was it, wasn't it, was it the straight eight or was it six inches travel? Could have been the straight eight. I have no idea. Um, but we basically got the bikes rolled out of the back in Durango behind Yeti and we're like, okay, we're going to do some testing, we'll do some runs. And I literally just grabbed my bike. And by the time I've sat on my bike, I think it was Joe Lowell. Could have been One of them, he jumped off a little embankment behind the the parking lot and he bent open his ring arm. Literally, testing was done within like, I don't know, 30 seconds. We're like, nope, rolling them back in. And they were welding in struts to make it not bend open. It was, it was a very strange design because it had a pull shock instead of a compression shock. So I don't know if you know what that looks like. I remember that bike vividly, yeah, the, the shock would yeah. almost sit horizontal alongside the down tube. It was exactly parallel to the down tube, and uh, the, 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 everything was reversed, basically. It was a pull shock, and uh, that, that bike was, uh, the first year was, it was okay, because all the bearings, there were no bearings, all, all the bearings were bushings, so... The bushings were would get sticky, would have to get greased. The mechanics hated it. Everybody hated it. In the second year, we had bearings. And that's when I got my, I would say, my sort of comeback year where I finished second in the World Cup again. And also won two more World Cups on the Schwinn straight eight. That was, yeah. But, I mean, again, I mean, even though you're saying that bike was good and you went on to get second, I mean, it didn't start that way. I mean, testing back then... These guys were pioneering the sport of downhill. You were pioneering it as an athlete and you're working with people and, man, you had to make it up as it goes along. I can't believe you barely made it out of the parking lot. I mean, that doesn't give you much confidence, I guess. But, I mean, I guess you don't have any choice at this stage. You don't. And I remember there was a big supposed leap in technology, which were disc brakes. And that happened also in that because the Lowell design would only work with disc brakes, and it was a floating disc mount and the, like a floating caliper mount in the rear. It was way ahead of its time. Um, but we had this, for me, new company called Hope that were making uh, disc brakes. So, and I was, I always thought it was a, an odd name choice for a brake, is Hope, you know, because <laughs> it's not very confidence inspiring. But those, Brakes were good until they weren't too, because I think they also, everybody, every component maker was working on the bit, trying to make it last. And when we went, I think 96 was the second or the, then the second year we went to Nivegal, and which was like the first, like proper down, of course, I think as far as modern days goes. And I remember those, those, Brakes would pump up so much from the heat that you'd have to basically start your race run with the lever almost at the bars. By the time you would get to the bottom, that would be all the way out. And then also sometimes the glue that would 
that was used to hold the pads, the brake pads to the metal piece, it would get so hot that your brake pads would shoot out. Then you'd have nothing, basically. Um, yeah, there were a lot of, you know, things that we were basically the, the test test pilots for. And it wasn't good. It was not good at all. I think a lot of people got hurt. I know my wife got hurt when the fork snapped. She was unconscious lying there. And that was like, an, that was early. That was very early in the early 90s, too. A lot yeah, of scars, I mean, injuries. It, it must have been, been scary because some of it, or I say some of it, most of it was out of your control. Maybe this is a good segue on how we got back in touch. Um, you're going to start announcing a fundraiser, and I'd, I'd love to speak more about these things I think that have come later to you about the reflection of crashes, how lucky you've been, how lucky you know all of us have actually been, you know, and and maybe something we don't like to speak about, and is the injuries, and, and worst case in some of these injuries. Can you just shed some light into the fundraising you're doing and, and what's, you know, sparked that for you? Uh, let me, I guess I'll say what I'll fundraise, or what I do first. I'm going to basically auction off my 1994 Manitou frame. Um, it's the frame before it stem i think that's what's on it and also my leader's jersey from 1993 so there is going to be auction that's starting september 1st i'll run it for 15 days and start to bid at 300 bucks why not uh and whoever has the highest bid will get in my, my frame from 1994 and a leader jersey from 93 and all of the funds will go to the wings for life foundation which is basically they're supported by red bull uh, they're, I think, the only foundation that I could find that makes any kind of moves on spinal cord injuries, research, development, trying to get a cure, or just trying trying to help people that have these injuries. Because I feel like I've known so many friends, and you know, not just mountain biking, even road racing. I remember my friend who won the Olympic gold medal in Spain, Barcelona, Barcelona, Christian Meyer. He was paralyzed. Before I even started mountain biking, I already knew people that were getting paralyzed. Uh, it's just something that happens, and unfortunately, you know, we don't like we don't like talking about it much. It's uncomfortable to us. Also, what do you say to people that have such a life-changing event? I feel like they sometimes don't really want to talk to us because maybe we are a reminder of what their life was like. I think some some can handle it. Some can't, some change into completely different lives, which is probably a good thing. But it's just because just because there's no communication be between the two parties, the, the parties that have that have been lucky enough to make it through, that didn't get injured, or if they got injured, they recovered, that party and the party that basically fades out of sight, that is injured, sitting at home, and nobody talks to them. I just I just wanted to kind of connect those two parties and just let them know that I'm thinking of them. I've always thought of them. I just didn't know what to say. And so, yeah, I mean, it's uh, so besides, besides the whole uh, fundraising thing, I also want to, or the auction thing. I also, uh, what I'm asking for people besides the auction is I have a GoFundMe I start and I want everybody who's listening to this to put in $10 for every close call you've gotten to have a life-changing injury. And I know that I can, off the top of my head, just, I'm putting in 50 bucks. 
I, I think I got to put in put in a hundred. I and I can hear that this is tough to talk about, Jurgen. So I appreciate you bringing it to light that we we can maybe connect those two. It seems like that's a real passion of you. Sorry to butt in, but that you want to connect those parties and 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 be able to talk a little bit more openly in this because I do agree with you. There's something eerie about it, and I think we want, when we're racing, we want to almost ignore it because we know how how it could have been us. Right, and I think it's also detrimental to your racing if you're thinking about that. You can't have that in your head. It's you're done. If you're thinking about being paralyzed while you're racing, or like it, you have to forget about it, kind of. You can't, you, you have to pretend you're invincible, right? I mean, I always had this, sounds stupid, but I had this motto in my head when I raced, which is kind of like the gladiator things, like, you know, never give up, never surrender. Because you would never have a complete clean run, right? You would have mistakes. You would have maybe a fall, but you would get up and just never give up, never surrender. So it's just, just, just take it all, you know, just don't even let anything slow you down until your body doesn't recover or it has a permanent injury. Like, a, yeah, that's, I don't know. I mean, I had, so again, how did this, how, why is this so important to me is uh, I had this little, you know, I went, I, I went away, I quit racing, I did my thing, but then I always started, I still rode and I raced a little, and I think I came back in like 90, uh, 2007. And I, I believe I raced you a couple times uh, at the US Open, I believe, right? Yeah, we, we crossed paths at the US Open for sure in some of those East Coast races, yeah. Right, right. And then, uh, so I raced uh, 2007, 8, 9, 10, and I went to the uh, Mega Avalanche in France. And I was really, I was excited, you know, because it felt like old school down racing. And uh, in the qualifier, I went to this, halfway down the course, there was this real gnarly compression with an uphill. So the faster you would go through the compression, the less you'd have to paddle up the hill, right? That makes sense. So I kind of, you know, knew that. And I was like, I'm going to hit this thing without brakes, full speed. And I've done it in training. It was a hard compression. I could handle it. It was fine. But I hit something maybe 10 feet before I even got to the compression, lost control, and basically went full speed into the uphill, body slammed, and broke two vertebrae on my back. And uh, I knocked the wind out of me. I was way ahead of everybody at that point. So I just, I did this stupid thing where just never give up, never surrender. I just grabbed my my shit, my bike, got back on it and just, just rode down. I still qualified second. But I was like, I've had, I've had pain before, but this was this weird crushing sensation. And I, I'm a moron with pain. You know, I don't, I can't really put it anywhere. I mean, it's like, how do you, uh, how are you supposed to know you broke your back? How does that feel? I have no idea, right? So I kind of just took a bunch of, you know, ibuprofen, ice, and I was like, oh yeah, it's, it's okay. It hurts. But I used to race, you know, I used to break my wrist, break my hand or something. I would race two weeks later, you know, 10 days, the bone starts sticking. I would say, right. Um, so I raced actually this, the day after, so I didn't know I broke my back, right? So let's just be clear on that. I raced the next day, the Mega Avalanche, in a lot of pain. I ended up 10th, uh, um, and then I went home. 
and it was just it just got it got worse the pain and uh, I went to a doctor they misdiagnosed me because it's America I guess <laughs> I don't know uh, yeah because I was just I had I had two thoracic vertebrae completely compressed. Like both of them are wedged right now, so I still have issues right now. Um, but not it's enough about me. Basically, it just kind of opened my eyes to that these things happen to people that changes their lives forever. And I got really really lucky that I walked away. You know, really lucky that I also never like I didn't re-injure it the next day when I still was on my bike. You know, racing down a hill after having a big you know, bad fall. So I just, um, I'm, I'm just, I'm the, I feel like I'm the luckiest guys, guy out there, you know, doing just dumb shit. Yeah. I watched your, um, the YouTube video, which I'll try link to in the notes and I'm sure we're going to drive them to this page, the GoFundMe page. Um, and watching those old footage of downhill is awesome. You know, it, it took me back. I wasn't there, but as a child, I would be watching some of those old footage and getting inspiration. But I was seeing those crashes and you were speaking about you had to have this attitude of just get up and do it again. And yeah, you call yourself the luckiest man alive. And I think it must make us all realize how lucky we are and to appreciate things. And, and I really do urge everyone to go there. You know if you're a mountain biker, you've had a crash and probably a big one. So I think let's get behind this. So what is the, where will we find the GoFundMe page and the uh, link to potentially, you know, buying a raffle ticket? Because that's an amazing piece of kit to own. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to spread the news everywhere. So it's definitely going to be on the YouTube channel, Van to Bike, in the description of, like in the bottom of the video description. I'll put it on my Instagram. That's Jorgen Benneke. I'll put it on, uh, yeah, all this, all this nonsense, you know, you know, social media, Facebook, Twitter, whatever is there, TikTok. Yeah, I'm sure we'll get it on the websites. We're going to link to it in these podcast notes. I'll link to it on my Instagram. We'll try sharing in the story. So you will be able to see it. And, and yeah, let's, let's get together as mountain bikers, as sports fans, whoever's out there listening it was brilliant getting the the email from you guys about this initiative because that's hopefully what we can do about the podcast is promote something and and kind of share the love for the sport because I feel like I've got a lot from the sport, a hell of a lot. Everything yeah. I have in life is from it. And and it seems like you're realizing you got a great education, you had an awesome time in your life, and now it's time to create awareness and give back it on some level. By the way, let's just track back here. Like I gotta, I gotta say, I, I listen to most of your podcasts. They're, I, I'm a big podcast fan, period, right? Um, but I really, I really enjoy them, and uh, I, I really appreciate what you're doing there. And I think it's time that a racer is actually doing this in the right way. And I think you are doing it in the right way. And I hope you're sticking with it. And I, if I were a sponsor, which if I had money, I would sponsor this show. Um, I hope. You know, you're getting to where you want to go with this because I, I think it's great. And uh, especially, you know, which one was this? This was like the la one of the last podcasts I was listening to uh, about. He was talking about social media. Um, this Swedish guy? Oh, Sonderstrom. Yeah, Sonderstrom, potentially. That line that, that he said about if you had a friend who's bragging, you'd never be friends with him or you'd get, you'd get rid of him. And that social media is actually exactly that, that everybody's bragging to get likes. It's such, when I listen to that, it just, 
like that's what I that's what I look for in podcasts. I feel like um, that he always gets something out of it, and uh, I, I really think you know you're doing a good job, Tracy. Morris, yeah, I I so appreciate that. It has it has been great, and and I really I'm I'm honored that you would say something like that because exactly if we can reach if I can reach you, hopefully I can reach someone else, and and from there. Let's create awareness. Let's add value. Let's add some entertainment. And I do get a lot from podcasts myself. I've learned a hell of a lot. And I hope the listeners are feeling like a good fly on the wall here talking about what it was like to race downhill and, and, and the risks that were involved. I love Tracy Moses' one, which brings up maybe, I don't know, maybe I can be an advocate for this. Maybe uh, Maybe more ladies. I don't know. In terms of what? More ladies in terms of? On the podcast. I, I'm happy to hear that. I'm happy that you enjoyed it because I got some feedback to bring ladies on. That was always the plan. Like I, I, I think they they. Well, I love how she spoke about. It. I said she didn't see it like that. She was just doing as good as she could at, at her craft. I think that's so brilliant to not even that she didn't even separate it. Right, but we can't forget that she is handling it that way. I think because a lot of women don't handle it that way. I think. Yeah, and 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 I um I've had uh, many uh, teammates that I, I learned a lot from. I respect and I saw the work ethic and and what goes into it. So yeah, I appreciate that you enjoyed it. Um, it's it's funny, you know, you look at some of the listens per episode and they vary here and there, and and I'm definitely looking into that if I'm going to carry on doing this. So thanks for the for the kind words and, you know. I've personally known some people have got injured and I think you've sort of slapped me in the face to go, but why have you not reached out? And 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 I think you're right. I think when you're racing, you you block it out. It's almost like a traumatic experience. And I'm not making this about myself. I'm not comparing, but you have to block it out if you're going to carry on the career path you've chosen and, and to deliver those results you're kind of expected to do. Yeah, you know who comes to mind thinking about that when I came back, who was one of the nicest guys? Because, I mean, honestly, in 2007, I was washed up and old, and I I just had fun coming out and, you know, racing my bike. And, you know, I remember somebody said, like, oh, dude, the sport has changed so dramatically. You won't be able to do anything. I was like, wait, what? Does it start at the top and finish at the bottom? He's like, yeah. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm fine. But uh, Matt, Matty Leaconen? Yeah. Um, such a nice guy. I mean, because I was basically coming back after such a long break. And that's when you want to ride with people. You want to follow people and kind of get the, the you know, your speed check. You like, how fast am I hitting what? You need to follow people when you're getting back into that race pace. And I remember I, I was following in Mount St. Anne, 97. I was uh, in 07, 97, 07. I was following Maddie, and I was following uh, Steve Smith, Stevie. He would he would do runs with me. It was great, and those guys were like so nice to me because they were like, yeah, just come come along. I don't know, you know. I mean, they knew who I was, but they also was like, I was I was kicking around in an old YMCA hockey jersey. Basically, I bought a V10 Santa Cruz, and those were the nicest guy. And Maddie had such horrific injuries, and. You know, I don't think we should forget about what he's done for the sport, and you know, where is he now? Kind of like, I've uh, no, I've got him. He's he's cued for the podcast, but um, 
we we're just going to decide when to do it. So I had Maddie was one of the first guys I thought about getting on the podcast because what he achieved, same as you, for next to no money, winning World Cups, coming back from injuries, just getting back on a bike after some of his horrific injuries and be able to take the start line. Yeah. So that's good to hear. No, Maddie was always great for the sport, as was the late Stevie Smith. And I'm looking at this. I mean, you got 17th at that World Cup, and Mount St. Anne is no easy course. So um, that's pretty cool. You smoked a lot of youngsters that were getting paid to ride their bikes down a hill when you came back after six years off. So that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, it was it was fun, but it was also partially stupid. <laughs> you seem to be do you do quite a few stupid things, but it's almost like ugh, if you don't try, you never know what you'd achieve. I think I think you're almost uh, like a work, walking billboard for that. Yeah, yeah. No, it's. Uh, I think it's it's the way you deal with. It's hard to walk away from racing. It keeps. I'm sure you feel the same way, right? Because I know that you're still fast. There's no. There's no way that you're still like you're still a fast racer, even if you're not. Are you still racing? By the way, no, no. I have made a conscious effort to to not race again because if I did, I would probably want to do it well. Like you know, that competitor drive would come back, but I don't know if I want to put all the not the effort, but I'll be honest, getting hurt. Let, let, you know what? I should speak freely about that. Getting hurt is one of the, the things that I don't miss, the risk. I'm like, shucks, you know, like I've walked away. I would need a few years to get back comfortable where I don't feel like I'm going to crash and get hurt. Does that make sense? Oh, it totally makes sense. So, y yes, I could come back and I did a pump track race, which was low risk, touch wood. And I did enjoy it and I was competitive. But to come and race downhill, I don't want to just come and make up the numbers like you did put some effort in and to get 17 in the World Cup, you know, you're not just rocking up there and, you know, going off the start line and having fun. Yeah. So to answer your question, like, yeah, of course I miss it. And I think walking away, I do want to interview a lot of people and see what it, it was like to walk away and to to give up racing and, and force themselves to do something else. And it's been a mental challenge of note. I must say, I, I miss a lot of it every day. I would highly recommend. So this is Mert Lawless always said that, and that, that's like you know, if if you don't know who Mert is, watch on any Sunday. That'll all make sense to you. But Mert always said to me, he's like, a racer is a racer. It doesn't matter. A racer is a racer, right? So if the course is shit, if if you're just going down, the course could be just down the road, no skills, straight, no turns. You still have a race. You want to be the fastest, no matter what. It doesn't matter if you're racing shopping carts in the parking lot or if you're just you're just there for the challenge, for the race. You want to race. That's basically it. So for me right now, I still race, but I don't – after my injury, I was like, I'm never, ever, ever going to compete in a gravity sport. That was kind of the, the promise I made to myself because I was like, first of all, I feel pressure. Everybody's gunning for me. And I talked to Marcus Klausman, the other German, uh, uh, you know, who has won a World Cup back in the 90s. And he basically, uh, I think, also would agree with that, that if once you've been at a certain level, it's really hard to do something and, and just be okay with it and have fun. You want to do well because everybody's going to be gunning for you. So 
I race uh, right now. I race road, a cyclocross, you know, track a little bit, whatever. And if I suck, it doesn't matter, and I have a blast. It doesn't make a difference to me. And I race with a bunch of old people. Well, my age people. Um, so, which is old people, I guess. Uh, and it's I, if I would just suggest anything to anybody who's quit racing professionally downhill, is find another way of racing because a racer is a racer. You got to do something. You know, and uh, find some other cycling event that's not quite as dangerous uh, and go for it, you know, enjoy. Yeah, I mean, uh, once this episode drops, the Lopes episode should have dropped and we speak a lot about that. He's, I think up until this year, he's like 48 now. He's raced something most years and, and I asked him about it and he said, oh, I did this race. So I've ticked my race off for the year. So even he racer by heart and he tried a few different disciplines and i understand what you're saying and and it's something that you're totally right if you once you've raced at a certain level your your mind if you got in the start gate wants to kind of achieve that again but i haven't put the time in i've got a few other endeavors that keep me away from full-time preparing and the body's just not quite there The, the mind wants to do certain things and it's almost like my body's a few seconds late so i'll have moments where i've touch wood feel good on the bike but i'm telling you i'm close to crashing because my body's like just that split second i haven't got that full you know pro touch anymore you know and i would need a few months and almost years to get back to that if that makes sense it does but it sounds like you still care (laughs) care about what going fast no that what the end result of that race oh oh i absolutely probably haven't gone back because i might care about it still so i'm getting to the point that i've don't give a shit then i might come back and do a local race and get fourth and go okay well i had fun with everyone who cares so yeah you would race downhill well i don't know i don't want to race cyclocross i'll tell you that for free (laughs) it's horrible And, and i don't want to race the cape epic which everyone asked me about when i'm doing that because that's like eight hours of hell I don't know. It's like I've been there, done that in a weird way. uh, Like I play a bit of golf and that's like to me the biggest challenge ever because every day biking, when you get decent, like you go pretty quick all the time. Golf would be like doing a downhill race. You're used to getting fifth and you have a beautiful run and you get 55th. Like there can be such a disparity between the days and you feel like you did the same thing. So it's like the biggest mental challenge ever. So I think I get my challenge from that, if that makes sense. It does. It does. And I think like that makes, no, I'm happy to hear that, that you found something that's an outlet because I think you to you got to set goals, right? I'm sure you have goals of where you want to be with golfing. Because otherwise you're just aimlessly, you know, I mean, you have goals with your podcast and professional life and whatnot, but there's got to be a recreational path and and, an outlet to do something else besides work. And uh, it's nice. I mean, I think think we're very goal-driven people or everybody who's raced successfully. So if you can set yourself sort of goals in another field, I think that's very helpful for mental health. Yeah, it's like a, the pros and cons of, of your characteristic and, and your personality type. You know, if you're highly driven, you're going to be pretty highly driven in most things you do and you don't really want to do them unless you're good, which is also 
think you've got to stop yourself because if you don't try something, even if you crap in the beginning, which everyone is crap at something in the beginning, you might never try enough things. I know Martin Sonnestrup's doing a bit of skiing. That seems to be his like Nordic skiing. Yep. That's going to be clearly his outlet because he wants to also step away from, com- or he has stepped away from competitive slope style, competitive uh, speed and style, all that stuff, because it wasn't giving them him the fulfillment he needed. So, yeah, I, I like speaking about the challenges that I think professional sportsmen and, and maybe someone that changes career paths like 180, because it's kind of what you do when you stop racing. You're forced right. to get another type of job often. So it's like telling a dentist to be a lawyer or telling the lawyer to, I don't know, go be a yoga teacher. I mean, you're telling him to flip 180 and he doesn't have a skill set. Yeah, but it's almost worse than that because it's like, it's like because most of the times racers are still want to be racers and they look, it's like you, I hated looking for sponsors because it felt like begging to me half the time. And I'm, I'm, I have too much pride for that. So I'd rather walk away and find another way of making money than begging for a ride or begging for sponsor. That's what it felt like to me. Even so, I'm sure I brought value, I bought whatever, they get something out of it. I mean, thank God it wasn't social media back then. Jesus. I mean, that would have been, you could actually measure that, which is, I mean, you could measure back then how many magazine covers you'd get and how many pictures and images and magazines and like I would do those kind of clips. I have a folder of magazines basically and articles. So I'd basically show up at the sponsored meetings like, hey, look, this is how many covers this is how many da, 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 da. so that that was my way of measuring my impact, social impact, call it whatever. But I think when the lawyer or somebody, anybody else changes a career, it's I guess I don't know. It seems there's only so many sponsors. It's very few. There's the bike industry is very small. And if you're on the outs, it's like, it's not your call a lot of times. And that would makes it so much harder because you kind of, I feel a lot of people are getting like, it's an insult almost, right? Because you just, you know, that's a key point. There's, there's two things I, I remember vividly. And there's a quote, like no one leaves. And now you're, you're American now living there. No one leaves the NFL by choice. If you think about that, they have a very limited career span because of injuries, except for your like Tom Brady. And they get paid millions of dollars to run out in front of 60,000 fans or whatever it is on a weekly basis and get that adrenaline rush. And now you're telling me someone walks away from that? Not often. You yeah. know, they're, they're pretty forced out of that sport. And, and a lot of times, like you're saying in downhill, that happens as well. And mine, my decision was both. But I must be honest with myself and honest with the viewers that I didn't quite have the contract that I thought would fulfill me. Right bike, right teammate. Didn't, it wasn't really the paycheck, I'll be very honest. I needed a paycheck, yeah. but I didn't need the biggest one anymore because I wanted to go out on my terms. And that wasn't going to happen. So I had to think about you know, the, almost the universe telling me, hey, you know what, maybe it is your time to walk away. Maybe you've had a good run here. Maybe you don't need to force this. Maybe this is your challenge to try figure something out. So I think to sportsmen out there that are going through this, it's not easy. It's not easy by any stretch of imagination, but you've given them some key things. Maybe find something that is a hobby, but you can get the competitive juices flowing. That might help you get through that issue, you know? Yeah, and then if you're lucky, maybe your hobby can be your next profession. 
which is ideal, right? I mean, I hope that, like, for example, you, if you really enjoy podcasting, I hope you can make maybe a living out of it or announcing whatever it is you're doing, right? Um, so if that, whatever you like to do, you do it really well, the money will come. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm really, like, I, that's where I am right now in my life, I feel like. I'm basically, I'm all peachy, right? Everything's great. You know, I'm making making stuff, products, selling online. I got my own business, so I can make my own call and I work for my customers. It's exactly what I wanted. It took me forever to get there. and uh, But it's only because I'm absolutely take it, like I'm driven. I, I This is basically when I made that decision, it was like 10 hours a day, every day, you know, just head down and all in. So I think... It's important for somebody who's been a good racer because that's you're all in, right? You got to be all in in something else, and uh, and hopefully that whatever it is leads you to something where you can make a living out of it. And it's not about how much money you have; it's how much you get to keep of it. You know, nobody ever made a was it nobody ever no no nobody ever ran out of money making a small profit or ran out of business making a small profit. So you know, don't shoot for the sky. You know, do something you love and just do that a hundred percent. You know, it's gonna it's gonna give you a lot of mental health benefits, and you're gonna be happier. I think. You know, I mean, I'm 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 happy now, and I, I'm I'm happy. Honestly, I watch downhill racing on whatever it is, the tubes here, the Red Bull TV, and or practice. God, I watch practice runs. When I hear that whistle, I have anxiety almost. <laughs> I'm like. I can I put myself back in that spot where I'm like walking the course or, or practicing and looking people flying by, looking at lines and, and you're looking at them and you're like, oh, these, like everybody looks so much faster than you are always, right? You're never looking at another rider and seeing yourself being just as fast or faster. You're always like, wow, he's fast, right? But it's bogus, but that's what you, that's what most people. That's at least where I put myself always. So no, I think most people do. I I used to watch riders and be like, dude, there's like sixty guys that are gonna win this race this week, and it ain't gonna be me. And then <laughs> you do a time run and be like, oh, I'm top five in time or tenth or whatever it is, and or you where you normally are, you know? Yeah, and that I think weighs on you, that whole anxiety, right? So I think it's 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 nice to step away from that and that you know i don't miss that part at all that pressure and then also you're only as good as your last race and you only have a job to a certain amount of time yeah no it's really it's it's not it's not for the for the mentally weak which you know maybe that's what i am but it's not so much it's not that fun sometimes you know well, I, mean? I think um, there's a few things that come to mind with that. And maybe for the, the – the, we've got some aspiring listeners, I hope, that are racing or want to. I do get some a lot of messages on Instagram, and they wanted to ask Lloyd Bruni a lot of questions. You could see they were racers themselves. So if, to them, when you're in it, you need to be in it. And I remember John Cacaldi, who I need to get on the show, I think, said yes. to me, I, I, I'm always fascinated by what do you do after racing and what's this like? You know, I was just curious. That's where my mind was going. And he said, I'll give you one word of advice. If you still want to race a few years, don't ask those questions and don't think about it. Because then if you start putting a plan B in place, you're not going to focus on the present. And the present moment is the only way to go fast. 
And then the second thing, if you are trying to walk away or, or it's coming up or it gets forced on you, I think, Jürgen, you've said it and, and I'm realizing it. There is more to life. When you're in it, it seems like it's the only thing that exists. And, and how else could you make a living, let alone have some sort of fulfillment? You know, it means so much. But then the minute you walk away, you're like, huh, I've got my weekends back. Or I can go do this activity that I wanted to do. Or I can stop and smell the roses to use a really ridiculous cliche. But there is more to life. It's not everything and everything, you know? No. And coming full circle again, we have our health. And this is the whole reason why I'm doing this. Because there's some people that did not walk away with their health. And that's why that auction, that GoFundMe means a lot to me. Because um, there's a lot of people that they didn't even get fired. They didn't get, you know, they didn't have that choice. So, you know, Tarianis, I kind of promised her back then when she crashed that I would do this. It took a long time for me to get this together. And now it's happening. So I'm psyched about that, you know. So I just want to get the word out because that's the hardest part about this kind of stuff is, you know, getting the word out that I'm auctioning this off, that, you know, if you're not interested in that, that I'm doing a GoFundMe. So I just definitely want to get the word out. I don't want to fail on that part. No, I think we're both going to put as much effort as we did into our racing to getting the word out to honoring Torianas. She was she was great. She was actually almost mentored me a bit when I was a youngster on the circuit. Uh, Paul Bass, who you've been in touch with, who I've also got to know quite a bit. So uh, you're going to gain... Go find Jürgen's Instagram. He's got a brilliant YouTube video out there. I'll link to it. I'll do my best to link to it. I'm sure it'll be on the big website, so we're going to start pushing it. He's going to have that fundraiser, which is an amazing bike that anyone that knows anything about Dino will want to own. He's got his leader's jersey. And again, every time you've crashed and you thought you should have been hurt, which we all know is a lot, I'm leaning on you guys. We need to go and donate. We need This is a great cause. So Jürgen... I think that's a great way to end. That's, that's why you came on, is to create awareness, to get the conversation going. So thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me and wish you all the best for the podcast. And if any sponsors listening, just give uh, Andrew some money, please. Thanks, Jürgen. And what a great initiative. Yeah, awesome. Thank you, man. Holy, I actually don't even know where to start. Thanks so much to Jürgen Benicke for coming on the show. Wow. The winner of the first official Downhill World Cup series. How much history has he got? How much experience helping pioneer the sport that we all love and follow to this day? So guys, I urge you, go to that GoFundMe page. Do any little bit will help. $10, $50, you know we've all had crashes. I know I have. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to donate. Check out the awesome YouTube video it has. Go find those links to the fundraiser as well. So guys... This was Moving the Needle Podcast. You know what to do. Subscribe, rate, review. Make sure you push to get those notifications when I drop the next episode. Guys, I appreciate all the feedback. Till the next one, stay well.